0: Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Let's get at it. Thanks for being in on this introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. Father, thank you for the day. This is the day you've made. And we rejoice in it because we're together. And we love you, and we love your word. We love your people, and we love Christ. And so we ask your blessing upon our time today that as we worship in the new song, the song of redemption, and as we consider a section of your word and hear it preached and hear it read, that we be strengthened to be better for you and to be stronger lights in a very dark world. Thank you for how sufficient you are for us in every way. Thank you for living in us, Christ in you, Paul said, the hope of glory and the new life that that brings. We'll give you thanks and praise. So bless our time together, we would ask, and we thank you that you will. In Christ's name and all of God's people said, amen. amen. All right, I'm going to assume, hope you got a handout. Got a handout and open up your Bible to Ecclesiastes. And it's always easy to find because it's Psalm, Proverbs, and... There it is. So you can get right to it, put that kind of beside and grab one of those handouts. I know it's a little long, but I've had a couple of weeks to prepare and got a little carried away. So, and we we may not get done with the outline today. We're not going to panic about that. Um, if there's a few things to fill in yet, that's to bring you back next week to make sure you get it it fill, filled in. But It's important that we utilize the time that that we have. Now, I'm trusting you've read the book of Ecclesiastes. And if possibility, you haven't read the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm admonishing you to take your time but read through Ecclesiastes this week. If you have read the book of Ecclesiastes, I am admonishing you to read it again (laughs) (laughs) this week and take your time Reading through there, you know if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes that it is a bit of a different book, is it not? And it is so by divine design and with sovereign intent. And we want to be alert to that because God has a purpose in this book, of course all scripture for us, but in this particular book of Ecclesiastes that I think we can miss it or we can fly over it. And we don't want to do that with anywhere in the Scriptures. Um, I don't know, maybe if Ecclesiastes is your favorite book, raise your hand. I heard somebody made the comment, okay, two people. I heard somebody make the comment, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book, what's wrong with me? And I want to say absolutely nothing. Um I used the thinker because uh, Doug Wilson in his little book on Ecclesiastes makes a good point. And he said, if there is a problem with us about Ecclesiastes, the problem is that Ecclesiastes makes you think. And it makes you think hard. And it makes you think hard about life. And if he's right... Um, and I think he is, then we need to do more than just read through it. We need to understand it and, and study it together. So I pray you're, you are um, fire, fired up for the, the journey that we would have together this in the, in the following uh, weeks. Another writer makes the comment, Ecclesiastes is a heavy dose of reality in our culture of escapism. And I think he's nailing it there in terms of our present day. Let me just say it again. Ecclesiastes is a heavy dose of reality in our culture of escapism. There's a gentleman that has, his last name is Hebert, written an article called Escaping Reality, Why We Crave a Different Life. Just a quote from his um, article, and he makes the comment here the, regarding the popularity of alternative realities. It says, concerning the popularity of alternative realities, escaping into a virtual world is only one of a variety of ways that people try to escape the difficulties of life whether it's watching hours of television, drinking until all feeling is gone, getting high, or experiencing, quote, your best fake life now on a computer game, these are all means of numbing ourselves to the very real pain and brokenness of the real world. Escaping reality. And I don't believe, and I know you don't believe that God created us to be ones that are escaping reality. While I was uh, reflecting on the book of Ecclesiastes uh, recently, and I walked into the, uh, the other great room this week, and I noted they had all of the uh, books of the Bible um, in ways for kids to see it and be reminded of the nature of the book. And I had to laugh because if you see in the middle there's Ecclesiastes, it's like they didn't know what to say about it. <laughs> and I thought, that's kind of symbolic. That's somewhat symbolic. I've had people say, I just kind of don't get it, being uh, honest about this. Well, okay, so in light of that, some initial reasons why we're going to tackle this book. I want to do that at the front end so I don't miss it today of our uh, outline, and then I'm going to drive it home with some other reasons why we're tackling this book at the back end. So, in the outline this morning, why Ecclesiastes? Well, one would be an obvious one, correct? Because all Scripture is profitable. And all Scripture is profitable, why? Because what it says at the beginning of 2 Timothy 3.16, we all know those verses. All Scripture is God, what? Brief. Brief. And therefore profitable for us, for Doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished to every good work. But this is scripture. That's enough. We don't need any other reason to tackle it. This is God's revelation for us, divinely designed in, with reference to the book of Ecclesiastes. And in, in its own way, it is rich for us. So, enough said about that. It's the Bible. We want to know it. Say amen. amen. Secondly, and sometimes I put a star by things, and if I was just catching this for the first time, I'd put a star by another reason why we're tackling Ecclesiastes, and that is this, because God created us in such a way that life must have meaning. Life must have purpose. You can write purpose under the line. That life must have meaning significance, and in case I miss it today, I want you to understand that Solomon is taking us on a journey of what that search is for meaning without God on a human level, and he wants to drive home to us the reality of where people are at without God's answers and without God in our lives. So life must have meaning. I like Jay's quote here. Here is where the existential psychiatrist can offer nothing. For they do not believe in the God of the Bible. For them, the future is but a long, dark tunnel. So you're taught how to cope. Christians don't cope, they conquer in Christ or you're taught how to cop out in another reality. Life must have meaning. I do not really recommend it as a... I've got lots of criticisms of the book. Let me just say it that way. And don't ask me later what they are. Okay? But I think it's one of the absolute best titles of a book that's ever been written and it's The Prayer of Jabez. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Remember that? Good. If you don't, good, good. But it's the title. Rick Warren wrote the book, right? The What Kind of Life? The Purpose Driven Life. It's my opinion that sold as much for the title as it did the content of the book. I've got criticisms of the book, but the title absolutely nails it. And at the beginning, in fact, I think it's why it's so popular with so many people who, um, just in general, are on that quest. Uh, in the opening of his book, in the introduction, he describes a survey conducted by Dr. Hugh Moorhead, philosophy professor at Northern Illinois University. Moorhead wrote 250 famous philosophers, scientists, writers, and intellectuals, 250, asking a simple question, what is the meaning of life? Some offered their best guesses, others admitted they just made up a response, still others honestly admitted they were clueless, and several of them even wrote back and asked Moorhead to write him back if they ever discovered the answer. Think about that. Think about that. Now, we can know all answers in everything in life today because we have AI. (laughs) Correct? So, I asked AI. (laughs) According to www.iaskai, I asked what is the meaning and purpose of life. Now we can all know. The purpose of life, says AI, is a deeply philosophical and existential question that has been pondered by humans for centuries. It is a question that has no definitive answer. (laughs) How about that? Now, as I'm having fun with that, and I trust probably you are to a bit as well, I would hope you would say right now, man, I want to be asked that question. Because if I know anything as a Christian, I know why I'm here. And what I'm living for, and who I'm living for. Um, I thought it was an interesting quote from Derek uh, Kidner. He says, Without a knowledge of the Creator, the most brilliant thoughts of the wisest man are reduced to guessing. It's true. So I would hope right now you would be saying, Pastor, ask me that question. I'll give you the answer. Now, it may flesh out a number of different ways. You might say my purpose in life is to become more like Jesus Christ, or my purpose in life is to worship God, or my purpose in life is is to propagate the gospel, or my purpose in life is to love others like Christ loves them or whatever. But ultimately, we're going to get to the ultimate answer that we've got one supreme purpose in life. And you should be able to take me to the Bible, and I should be able to take you to the Bible and to answer that. Now, I'm saying we would express that different ways, but it all gets to these verses and more in the Bible. Paul concludes that glorious section of 9 through 11 on God's sovereignty in all things in life, and he can only do one thing following that and prayerfully say, well, read 1136 with me. For from him and and our to him be There it is. We know we exist to live lives to the glory of God. We all say amen to that, right? We can all answer that. Living for him, not ourselves, to live lives that bring glory to him. Paul, in that great uh, prayer for the church at Ephesus um, that he prays for them, and he concludes in 20 and 21. We love those verses. Him who's able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory, notice, in the church. That's us. That's us. And in Christ Jesus to all generations. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the concluding verses of his uh, last uh, words really to Timothy and in the scriptures concerning Paul. It says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I think it's fair to say we would say the Apostle Paul, he lived his life to the glory of God. Would we not say that? And another great way for us to express that, and I, just, I, I don't want to just move past this quickly, but I, I'm telling you, the reality is in our world today, People are searching for meaning in life, and the reality of human depravity is that we look toward ourselves or all kinds of things, and it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't bring fulfillment, and it leaves people hopeless. And when people are hopeless, they're in real trouble. We could say it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. We could express our goal in life, as Paul does, in three different passages in the New Testament, that our goal is. And I like the way to say that, don't you? How do I want to live my life? I want to live my life to what? To please God, which will bring glory to him. So, back to Ecclesiastes. Why are we talking about that? Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is driving home to us where you get without God in looking for significance and meaning and purpose in this life. And beloved, it helps us understand where people are at, and many of them are like us. They have so much more than they would ever need in this life, and they're looking for more in the wrong places to find meaning and significance. And until they know the one to whom created them. It's going to be a treadmill in life without uh, coming to the right answer. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes also helps us to be honest about the troubles of life. And I'm just so thankful that when you become a believer in Christ, it's the end of all your troubles, amen? (laughs) Wouldn't that be wonderful, right? It helps us be real. Lots of times we're not real about life. But Solomon is, is really driving this home to us likewise. And, and when we are not uh, failing to be real about the troubles of life can easily lead to the question of our purpose in life. And Job says it best, doesn't he? For man is born for what? For trouble. Sparks fly upward. 14, one. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. So we're reminded of the fact that we're not living for this world, but, but Solomon is impressing upon us what it's like for people not only living in this world without God and with many troubles and burdens of life, asking the question, what's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose of it all? D, it also helps us in living for God and not for ourselves. Not for ourselves. And under the word where you write ourselves, write things or stuff. Stuff. One time I was using the word stuff in a sermon, and some people afterwards said you were swearing by using the word stuff. Well, I don't know where they got that, but there really is a lot of stuff. Amen? in our in our our world, and we can lose focus and begin to think we find our meaning and significance in things rather than the giver of of life and of gifts to us and and we 're going to often just bounce and you sh- your mind should be going many times to the New Testament and to quoting jesus christ and I would thank you to immediately think about Jesus saying that we ought to lay up for ourselves treasures where? In heaven. In heaven. Matthew 6, 19 and 20. So these are some initial reasons why it is profitable for us to, to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, why do we call this book? Why the title Ecclesiastes? Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. The English Ecclesiastes that we have in our English Bible is derived from from the Hebrew word koheleth. And when you look at our Bible, look at your Bible, verse 1, the words of the preacher, see that word, the preacher? That's our word, koheleth. That's our Hebrew word. And when you check out the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word koheleth, you have that word for the the church, literally, in the New Testament, the word ecclesiast- um, ecclesia, ecclesia, how many are familiar? Ecclesia, the church, you've heard somebody say that. Well, the idea here is that from the Koheleth and from this word ecclesiastes, for us, from the word ecclesia, we get this similar uh, word, ecclesia, that describes our word Koheleth or just let me read it, what it says under book title. Koheleth means preacher or gatherer or even the idea of an assembly. And so what's going on, and we could look at these verses in kings and other places, where oftentimes a king, or they would gather an assembly. That's the idea behind this particular word. So what is going on in verse 1 and following is The preacher, Koheleth, who we know is Solomon, is gathering the people of Israel, and he's saying, I got a message for you. I have some sermons for you. In fact, B, under number two, the preacher, Solomon, calls an assembling for a series of sermons. And I think he's a pretty good preacher. And he's got something to say for us. And in here, of course, this is under the inspiration of the of the Holy Spirit. So that's where we get Ecclesiastes. Aren't you glad I just tried to work my way right through that right there? Amen? Okay. Now let's talk about Solomon for a minute. What do you know about Solomon? Most conservative scholars assert Solomon as the author writing Ecclesiastes, and we're not going to try to prove that. That's so obvious from the book at the beginning because the preacher, Koheleth, is the son of David, king of Jerusalem. We know he's David's son. We've got to mention over again in verse 12, the preacher having been king over Israel and Jerusalem. So we're not going to go on with that. We just understand it is Solomon. And he was the third king of Israel, right? Saul and David and then Solomon. We know that he was raised or grew up under David in royalty. We could kind of say he had a silver spoon in his mouth birth. We know that he started very well, did he not? Did he not? We know that and that he was, ri- he was greatly, greatly blessed and privileged. He got to build the temple. Yeah. And then all of his glory known in all of his wealth and all of his riches and people from all over the world, queenship, to, to come and to hear his, hear his what? Wisdom. And to see the templeness, what well, man was he ever blessed and enriched, but we also know he drifted. He drifted. And that's why the most conservative scholars assert Solomon as author of writing Ecclesiastes later in life as a warning. Ecclesiastes, among other things, is a warning to us, and warnings are good. We need them and it's a warning against walking through life on the path of human wisdom. MacArthur says Ecclesiastes represents the painful autobiography of Solomon, who for much of his life squandered God's blessings on his own personal pleasure rather than God's glory. He wrote to warn subsequent generations, that would be us, not to make the same tragic error. So listen, write in your notes maybe or just make a a note of it in your mind. Ecclesiastes is a warning and Solomon's life is a warning. His life, likewise, is a warning, a warning for us. And I'd like you to turn to a couple of passages, one in the book of Exodus, if you would. Exodus 34. Exodus 34 people have experienced the golden calf tragedy. Uh, The covenant, God renews the covenant even with a sinful people. And in renewing the covenant, he extends mercy and grace to them. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 10, 34, 10. Then God said, behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people, I will perform miracles and so forth and all the blessings that he's going to do. And, and verse 11, people that he's going to drive out as he takes them into the land. And then verse 12 is where I'm, I was heading. Look at verse 12. Watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going or it will become a snare in your midst. Watch yourselves. My first, our firstborn has got me hooked on a program. It's called Alone. I'm not asking you to get hooked on it, but I'm hooked on it. Thursday nights, don't call me. I'm watching Alone. If you don't know the program, you don't have to. They're dropping off people somewhere out in wilderness area. They're people who are wilderness people, you know, and they... Uh, they can't wait to be in this competition because if you win it, you're going to get a half a million dollars by the person who stays out alone all by themselves. They don't get, a, they don't get a gun, but they get nine arrows and, and uh, some other equipment. There they leave them and, whoa, I'm going to win this thing. And it's like a week later, half of them are going, I want to go home, you know. But the one who hangs in there the longest, what has this got to do with this passage? Nothing. I just want to share with you. no that some of them that seem to hang in there a little longer know how to catch catch small game with a snare. And I just want to remind you, a snare is something that gets you before you know it if you're not careful. And that's what happened to Solomon. It got him. And we want to go over to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11. And see how he was snared. You know this, but it's worth reading for us. Because I agree, and I think you do too, and most conservative scholars that I read, saying this is, is Solomon at the end of his, toward the end of his life, writing Ecclesiastes, and, and he's, he's writing it as a man who got snared. Who got snared and blew it. First Kings chapter 11 If you're there, say amen. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomites, uh, Sidonians, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you should not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth and the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built high places for Shemash, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. Sad and how God had blessed him. And he got sloppy. So um, the father-son authors of uh, the um, exposition uh, series or or the one in Ecclesiastes, D. and J. Aikens, Um, it's a father-son writing that commentary together. I think it's worth reading. He says, the wisest man in the ancient world. I'm reading that last paragraph under number three there. The wisest man in the ancient world became a greedy, lustful, power-hungry, idolatrous fool. It's interesting. He also wrote the book of Proverbs. He had a whole lot to say about the fool. How sad. He violated the kingly commands of Deuteronomy 17, accumulated possessions as well as women for himself. He had 700. We just read this. The foreign women he married pulled his heart away from Yahweh. He did not deny himself anything he wanted. As a result, he ruined his kingdom. And God told Solomon that following his death, the kingdom would be divided after his reign. Solomon's life and book of Ecclesiastes is a warning about drifting. It's a warning about compromising. And it is a warning about the foolishness that says he who dies with the last toys wins. How sad. theme or motto of Ecclesiastes. You don't need me to tell you that one. Verse 2, five times the word. All is vanity. All is vanity. And repeated some 20 times in the book. You'll see it at the end of verses, like uh, 226. At the very end of the verse, he says, this too is vanity and Sifting after the wind, striving after the wind, all is vanity. Now, our word hevel in the Hebrew means breath or breeze. The concept or the idea here is that all of life is a mist or a vapor, a puff of wind, or a bit of smoke. Does it make you think about another verse in the New Testament, in the book of James? Come on. Life is a what? Vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. Is he quoting, James quoting Psalm 144? I don't know. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Hmm. That's the idea or one aspect of this idea of vanity. And we've got to get vanity right. Turn to the next page. Page two. We've got to get vanity right because it's more than just Fleeting. But that's so true. That is so true. But it's also, Well says, it's a multi-purpose metaphor throughout the book for the futility of life in a fallen world. One guy described um, the book of Ecclesiastes like every day is Groundhog Day. Well, that's pretty few life, wouldn't it? <laughs> Somebody else described it that Solomon is pointing out to us that life is like a cosmic merry-go-round. Mm. By the way, does anybody have the NIV? NIV? When I want to have you hand that in if you do. Just kidding. My wife, you, you, you got your NIV today? You go on out, go outside and think about it, okay? What does it say there in verse 2, Mrs. Kotke? You hear that? Everything is meaningless. Well, that might be pretty good. But it's not only the idea of futility. It's also the idea of uh, fleeting. Not only fleeting, but life is futile. Life is fleeting for everybody. Check. It's fleeting for all of us. But it's futile for many in this world. What's the point of it all? And so that word is driving home those two preeminent themes. John, didn't you say you preach through Ecclesiastes? Isn't that it? You better say yes, bud. <laughs> Amen. Now, there's more, but that's, that's, the, that's the primary thing. These driving home. Now, he gets to the end of the book, right? He gets to the end of the book. Um, by the way, notice this next uh, paragraph here. I had to put this in because of who made this statement more than anything else in the bible it captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world the drudgery of work the emptiness of foolish pleasure and the mind-numbing uh, tedium of everyday life think of ecclesiastes as the only book of the bible we know was written by a monday morning probably a philosophy major notice who wrote that herman medville what do you know about him moby dick yeah i don't know that the guy's a believer but I, I apparently he read, the, he read Ecclesiastes, didn't he? I went on Wikipedia. Just, he didn't say anything about any kind of relationship with the Lord there. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I know he hated that whale. Amen to that, right? But, I mean, he's, he's just catching this. He's, he's catching this for us. So then the nature of Ecclesiastes. We need to remember that Solomon's focus is primarily philosophical and experiential. not theological. Now, I want, to, I want to footnote that. I want to be careful here because God's mentioned nearly 40 times, practically every chapter. But it's not in the sense of thus saith the Lord and answering issues. It, it's more of, of Solomon's observation about God. So, uh, he, mentions, he mentions him, but he's, he's not bringing... God repeatedly into what he's driving home in these themes in the book. Hill and Watson, a great introduction uh, to the Bible. Ecclesiastes is not intended to be a systematic theology. Solomon makes no reference to the law or the prophets and nothing was said about Israel's place and God's plan. By the way, the nearly 40 times that God is mentioned, it's always Elohim. It's never Yahweh, covenant God. I think there's a point in that. He's talking about the creator. Bring him into it. So that's, that's uh, just the, the focus, though. So we'll see, we're going to see here, this key word, this next key word, under the sun, we're going to see that this book is, is about this, life under the sun, but Solomon can't help but bounce up from time to time above the sun, all right? So another key word or phrase, 29 times, under the sun. Metaphor for the quest of meaning from an earthly perspective meaning of life from an earthly perspective. When Isaiah was a little guy and I'd take him for a haircut, we'd go to a, I'm not going to mention the guy's name, but he became a friend, had opportunity to seek to present Christ to him and I think I might have even given him a Bible or something, but he just, he said, eh, I'm going to try to do that. Listen, he finally just leveled with me. He said, hey, hey, you need to understand this. And, and Ron was always bouncing off of somebody. I mean, the guy was just, eh, okay. He said, you just got to get this. When it's, when it's the end of your life, you die, you're dust, you're buried, it's over, that's it. He wasn't a very happy guy. I wonder why not. I wonder why not. Remember that, say heartache free. So, life under the sun is about observation, experience, and the perplexities of life. The perplexities of life. Because we don't have all the answers on this side of eternity. Amen? So, there's things in life. I look at some of you, and you could easily say, why? 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 But what we have to do as believers is, is not start with why, we need to start with who and what he says to us. Amen? Hill and Watson, the same uh, introduction to the Bible that I mentioned. Solomon is contending that there is nothing under the sun capable of giving meaning to life. Even if when, s- when some level of fulfillment or self satisfaction is achieved, death is waiting at the end. Frustration and adversity are unavoidable, and answers to the hard questions of life, they're not forthcoming under the sun. So, Wearsby says, is we're just talking down here on this earth. If this life then is all there is, it's an old song, is that all there is? If this life is all there is and nothing brings a net gain, where do you get net gain? We're going to talk more about that next week or the following week from verse three. What's the what advantage does man have in all his work, all his labor, all his effort, which he does under the sun. He's going to talk about, what's he got at the end of it all? If there is no net gain, then what's the point of our existence? And by the way, if, there, if there's no point in one's existence, and if there's no, if it's just we're dead, done, at the end of it, what does that do to any sense of a moral code Kind of gives you an idea of where we're at in our world. No accountability to a, gri- to a God, to a creator. So that's where we're at very much. Tim Keller, and I have problems with his stuff too. By the way, I have problems with most everybody's stuff, okay? There's only two people that are right always in the word teaching. One is Marshall, the other one's me, and sometimes I wonder about Marshall. Okay? That's where we're at. Okay? But I do criticisms his stuff. Just because I, re- I, I quote somebody doesn't mean I believe everything that they say are right. Amen? Okay? The, let's read that paragraph now. Th- these, the, but he says, a, he makes a good statement. These are the only two options. Either there's a God and our actions have meaning, or there is no God and life is a dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. People think Christians are naive, but if you're origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then have the guts to admit that your life is insignificant. Why work for human rights, common good, justice for all, if it's all going to be burned up in the end anyway? If we are just accidents heading for annihilation, what matters about anything that we do? Whoa! I believe Ecclesiastes is so good for us because it wakes us up to where people without the Lord are living. Hakmah. Everybody say Hakmah. You're all Hebrew scholars now. That's the word for wisdom. Wisdom. And Hakmah is the technical skill of gaining insight from information. I love, by the way, I love Wearsby's definition of wisdom. It's seeing life from God's point of view. Isn't that good? Wisdom. This is the same word central to Proverbs, the distinction Ecclesiastes, I think I've said that six different ways, is Solomon's pursuit of meaning is limited to observation and experience. But please note, please note. See, I don't want to fly through this without getting some of the points here with reference to our lives. Please note, a wise man remains subject to the potential of foolish choices. Amen? No matter how much you and I are growing in the faith, man, I pray we are, We still have the capacity to make bad choices and be snared, and Solomon was. So we need to keep our focus on the one who is wisdom personified, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, page three. Well, We won't get done today, but hopefully um, where we've gotten so far will get us ready. Okay? Then we've got this problem of evil. Oh boy, we watched one incredible, listened to one incredible sermon this past Saturday. MacArthur's doing a home run on answering the problem of evil in the world. But the problem of evil is what compounds futility of life. It compounds it. Over 30 times to express all the messy, distress, injury, injustice, wickedness observed, In this life. Now, if this isn't pessimism, I've never read it. Turn over to chapter 4. Chapter 4. Verse 1. Then I looked at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. Down to verse 2 for the sake of time. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. How about that for depression? Amen? Wow. Wow. Um, 5.16, if that wasn't enough. 5.16? This also is grievous evil. There's our word. What is it? Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what's the point? Now, I hope in your thinking right now, you're bouncing right up to Hebrews 9.27 or other thoughts regarding the fact. What's the point? Here's the point. You're creating the image of God and you're going to stand it before him one day. That's the point. It's appointed unto man. Everybody with me? As it is appointed unto man once to die and after this comes the, comes the judgment. Comes the judgment. If there was one truth that Solomon emphasizes over and over again, That no matter what he enjoyed, what he accomplished, the frightening shadow of death was always hovering over him. So it's the great equalizer. We all step on the treadmill of life and try to outrun death with all our activity, but to no avail. The grim grim reaper is faster than all of us. We are all going to end up at the same place. The end of our earthly life, facing God for eternity. So we better be ready. Amen? So, the evil, all the things going on in the world. I remember an opportunity, Deborah and I, was asked to speak to a gal who was, um, we'd never met her. She was um, dying of cancer. And she wanted to know why did, why did she have cancer, and so boy, we sought to be gentle with her and and to convey to her, but ultimately getting to her, her answer is because of sin in the fall, and uh, sought to present hope of eternity along with that, and the results was that uh, she conveyed to other people that I said she's gonna, she got cancer because she's a sinner, you know. And it broke my heart. Broke our heart. But why do I have? Because we live in a fallen world, that's why. We live in a fallen world. But there's, a, there's an answer to it. And that is why Christ came. Why did he come? Why do you think he came? He came to remedy this. Give us new life, forgiveness of our sin, and hope of eternity the glory of heaven. Amen? Man, that's our purpose. That's why we're here. And Solomon is just driving this home to us to see where people are at without God. Profit or advantage? Oh, good, we can stop on a positive note. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Yitron is our word. Uh, Back to chapter 1 again. I'll end real quick here. You know what that means when a preacher says that. May, I may, I may not. Okay, verse 3. What advantage, here's our word, what advantage or what profit, what advantage or what profit, verse 3, does man have all of his work. It's found nowhere else in the Old Testament, but its basic meaning, its ideas, but it's what's left over. Wait a minute. That isn't very encouraging, is it? This lack of surplus, gain, or advantage is what leads Solomon to be persistently persistent pessimism. okay. But what I wanted to get to is nothing better for a man and, and he gets to the fact he bounces up from time to time and he says to us that life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. But here's, here's my closing question with it. Life is a gift from God, but who gets to enjoy it the most? Those who know him and are living for him. Now go to the end of the very end, um, and I'm going to pray, go to the very end of the notes. Last statement, I'll come back to it as we come back to the notes next week. Bring these notes. They are inspired by me, a depraved man. And depraved and deprived. (laughs) Okay. Just the bottom of page four. Everybody together. Everybody together. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Amen? Amen. We'll come back. We'll finish it. Next week, and then just dive into those verses. We're just going to go chapter by chapter. Father, thank you for, uh, I pray, teachable people this morning, as we've even come to these other passages, certainly relating to our calling, our goal, our objective in life. And that's where the blessing is for us, to live to your glory. There is joy there, and found nowhere else in anything else. And we thank you that we know that. Sometimes we're distracted. Sometimes we think we're going to have more happiness in something else, and it's wrong. And those who may be struggling with, oh, I'd be more happy if I had, oh, please, may we repent of such thinking and turn our focus, our attention upon you. All that we have in Jesus Christ, wealth that we have, eternal riches, and glory of eternity. We thank you. But while we're here, we want to be attentive to this message from this book. And please, bring about change in our lives, good change for your glory as a result of it. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.